Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. We've been studying verse by verse through Matthew, and we have come to this point, this place where Jesus has been rejected by a variety of people. One significant group of people that have rejected Jesus are the religious leaders. I say they're significant because they ultimately will have the power to work with the Roman government to have Jesus executed. So certainly it's not good to have them on, uh, or be on the outs with them. But these religious leaders had been listening to what Jesus had to say, had been watching the ministry that Jesus was doing, and he wasn't lining up with their understanding of what the Messiah would be. And it gets so significant after telling Jesus to stop threatening him uh, and things like that, it gets so significant that it tells us in chapter 12 that they decide that they're going to just have to kill him. And so Jesus is on the outs, if you will, with the religious leaders. They're not the only ones, though, that don't accept Jesus. We see at the end of chapter 13 that Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, he hadn't been living there really since for a while. His new adopted hometown is Capernaum. But he goes back to Nazareth, and he's ministering there in Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue, and he is speaking there. And the people hear what he has to say, but their response is interesting. We read through it quickly last time we were together. They said, is not this the carpenter's son? Excuse me. Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And so we saw that the religious leaders couldn't accept Jesus, but the people that he grew up with couldn't accept him either, or they wouldn't accept him, because in their mind, surely God's Messiah is not going to be the kid who grew up down the street. And, you know, my kid played Little League soccer or or baseball with. Surely that's not going to be God's Messiah. So they wouldn't accept him as, as well. There were, however, lots of people that did accept what Jesus was teaching and the message that he was bringing and the works that he was doing. And so as we read in Matthew chapter 14, verse 1, notice that it says at the end of the verse, it speaks of this idea of the fame of Jesus. It says that Herod the Tetrarch began to hear about the fame of Jesus. And there were lots of people that were accepting the message that he had, and they were beginning to follow him and go to the places where The teachings were happening and things like that. So much so that the ruler of the people, he's called here Herod the Tetrarch, begins to hear about this Jesus. Now a Tetrarch was a ruler of an area of land that had been divided up into four sections. Eventually, so it it means one of the four rulers of a land. Eventually the word uh, essentially just came to mean a ruler. But here, this particular Herod, he is one of the four that rule over the region of Israel or Palestine in that particular day. And this is not the first time that we've heard this term of Herod. The first Herod that we heard of was back in Matthew chapter 2. And Christmas story, you know, it was that particular Herod. His name, he came to be known as Herod the Great. That particular Herod decided he was going to eradicate all of the boys two years old or younger that lived in and around the area of Bethlehem because folks had told him that the king of the Jews, the Messiah, was going to be born in Bethlehem. And since he couldn't quite narrow down which kid was the Messiah or exactly how old, you know, how long ago that kid was born, he just decided, you know what, give me a two-year window, kill all of the boys in that particular age group. That's Matthew chapter 2. Again, that fellow is named Herod the Great. 
And it's a term, by the way, he took the name for himself. He gave himself the nickname, The Great. And some people are great. But it's usually better if other people call you Herod the Great as opposed to you taking the name for yourself. And Herod the Great, he died somewhere in the first decade of the first century. So in the very early years of Jesus, he died. And his kingdom was divided into four kingdoms amongst his children and a sister of his. Previously, when we were studying Matthew 4, I put a map up on the board. And you can see the map there again. And I know the words are small and everything. It's not really designed for you to read it. What I want to do is show you the four different colors that are there. And so that dark green color, that's not Israel. That's outside of Israel. But those other colors, the light green, the two pinks, the yellow, and the orange, those are the four different regions, the tetrarchs or tetrarchies that were set up for the descendants or the relatives of Herod the Great to rule over. What I want you to take notice of today are the two pink regions. Those two pink regions are where Herod Antipas was ruling. They were under his charge. They're separated a little bit. They also happen to be the areas that both John the Baptist and Jesus ministered in. So the one that's to the north, the top one there, that's the Galilee region. That's where Jesus was ministering, and Herod Antipas was in charge of that area. And then the one that's more south toward the center of the nation there, that is where uh, John the Baptist was ministering. And so Herod is interacting with both of these men based on the fact that their ministry is taking place in the regions that he is in control of. And we learned also back in our study of chapter 4 of Matthew that it was Herod Antipas that had John the Baptist arrested. And so Matthew 4, 12, it says this, Now when Jesus heard, uh, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into the Galilee. So Jesus there is hearing that John had been arrested. But no mention is given as to why John was arrested in that passage. So we might look at it and think, oh boy, John backslid a little bit, he robbed a convenience store or something like that, and he got in trouble for it. But that, that's not what happened, but we don't know. It could have. I doubt it, but it could have. But now as we come to Matthew chapter 14, we learn the circumstances that were sur surrounding his arrest. So what Matthew chapter 14 will do, it'll be uh, like a literary flashback. So we're talking about something else, but you need to, you need to know what happened back here to understand that's something else. And so we go back in time, if you will, and starting in verse 1, we read this. Well, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And, though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised, with an oath, to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded that it be done. He sent, and he had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. What a freaky story, isn't it? Nice little girl. I'd like the head of somebody, please, you know, here on this. So Jesus' popularity is growing. And eventually word filters to 
Herod Antipas, about his teachings, about the work that he is doing. And immediately, this is not like a, like a reasonable, like your brain going into this reasonable place. Immediately, he draws the conclusion, oh, that must be John reincarnated. I, like the reasonable thing is, how about another guy like John? But he immediately goes to this idea that John the Baptist has been reincarnated. Now, we know that Jesus is not John the Baptist reincarnated. First off, they both live simultaneously, contemporaries of one another. Secondly, there's no such thing as reincarnation. And so you have this fellow here believing that John is reincarnated. What's really happening is he's got a guilty conscience. The scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Now, in the Western culture, United States, Europe, that sort of thing, where Christianity has had sort of an influence on our culture, there wasn't very many of us that really bought into the idea of reincarnation. It's more of an Eastern religion idea, but increasingly, reincarnation is entering in, this theology, this idea of reincarnation is entering into the, thing, the thinking of common America. And so many of you perhaps have thought that in times past or believed that or people that you know believe that. But the scripture is very clear. It is appointed unto man once to die and then you come into the presence of God and face judgment. And so make sure you're ready for that day. Reincarnation teaches this idea of, hey, you didn't do so well today. Well, you get another shot at it. And you keep sort of progressing through until, as some faiths will say, you reach a state of nirvana or oneness with the supreme God that is out there. That's not what the Bible teaches and so make sure you're ready on that day when you will meet your maker. But what's really at play here is that Herod is, has a guilty conscience. And that conscience is getting the best of him. As we saw, he had had John arrested. And the reason he had John arrested, our passage today tells us, is because John, as a prophet of God, had the audacity to call out Herod Antipas for his sin. We read it in verses 3 and 4 where it says, that uh, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, there's a couple things that are important for us to know here. She is called his brother Philip's wife, so that would be a sister-in-law. But then notice John also says it's not lawful for you to have her. That means that she became his wife. And the scenario is something like this. Herod Antipas is at a family reunion of some sorts, and he begins to glance over at his brother's wife. And one thing led to another, and he says, you need to come back with me and live with me. And he tossed out his one wife, and he brought in his brother's wife to become his own. And he's committing adultery with her. And John the Baptist, coming into contact with him, says, what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is sin, and judgment will come on you for doing so. Now, if somebody approached you, and so what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is sin, and judgment's going to come. If your heart is hard, your response is going to be, shoot up. I don't want to hear you. I'm not interested in that. If you are a despot, you know what you do? You throw the guy in jail. You make plans to kill the guy. And that's exactly what Herod Antipas is. He's a despot. He's a dictator. And so John coming to him, now the verse says he... John had been saying to him, it's a phrase which means he said it again and again and again and again. Every time John the Baptist came across Herod the Antipas, he calls him out for this sin. It's not like kind of a one thing, look, I'm just going to say this once and I'm going to leave it out there and then you do with that. He says it again and again and again to him. And finally, Antipas and his uh, sister-in-law slash wife uh, Herodias say, you know what, put this guy in jail, kill him. Now they don't 
have him executed, or Herod Antipas doesn't have him executed because, as we see, the people really respected John, the, the masses of people. And Herod wisely, I guess you might say, realizes, if I put this guy to death, I'm going to have a million people that are angry with me. Just put him in jail. We know, we've looked at it before, John would spend about 10 months in that prison, not knowing every day when he woke up, is today the day I'm going to be executed or whatever. Well, it would go on for about 10 months that he spent there in prison. It seems as if, if you read Mark, it seems as if Herod begins to have maybe a change of mind toward John. Not so much like I like you and you're my buddy and please point out all my sin, but you certainly are something holy and I don't want to mess with you. So it seems like he develops a fear and a respect for him. His wife does not. And his wife says, I want that guy dead. And so she comes up with a plan. And the plan involves Herod's birthday. And we read about it in verse 6. It says, now, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give whatever she might ask. Now, Herod's birthday was likely different from your birthday and your little family celebration. Herod's birthday could probably better be compared to a modern-day unbeliever's bachelor party. There would have been lots of drinking at this party, lots of sensuality at the party, probably lots of loud music and all sorts of festivities that were going on there. And as part of the party, as we see in this scenario here, the daughter of Herodias, who, remember, would be both his niece and his stepdaughter, but the daughter of Herodias dances before the company and pleases him. And it must have been some dance because notice in verse 7 there, Herod promises her whatever she wants. That's some dance. Wow, you're good. You know, what do you want? You can have anything you want. Now, Mark tells us that he says, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. So there's a limit on what you can ask for. But half of a kingdom is pretty good. So again, this must have been some sort of dance. And if in your mind you have this picture of a cute little girl coming out in like a tutu with a ribbon, you know, and, and doing a cute little dance, and he's like, oh, that's so sweet. Half my kingdom, you can have it. Then you're not understanding and picturing, and you probably shouldn't picture, the scenario that is actually taking place. In Mark chapter 6, the parallel passage of this event, Mark refers to her as a girl, and he uses the term that applies not to a cute little girl, but he uses the term that applies to a young woman in her mid to upper teen years. And so this isn't a little girl with pigtails dancing around with a ribbon or something like that. It's a fully developed young lady that's dancing in such a way as to be sexually enticing to her uncle and to all the other men that are gathered in this particular place, these sexually charged guys. The whole event was set up by Herodias. So think about that. Mom saying to her teenage daughter, I want you to go out there and I want you to sexually entice all of those men that are here at this party that are drinking. Can you imagine? What's the matter with you to this lady? Well, she does that. Um, Herodias had come up with a plan uh, because he wasn't going to kill John, it seems. And so she comes up with this plan to trick him and to do so. The plan is to get him so sexually enticed and drunk that after this erotic dance, she knew he would be at that place where he would just try to be impressing everybody, impressing this girl, and saying, up to half my kingdom, you could have it all. And then she would swoop right in and say, I don't want half your kingdom. I want one man's head. 
and I want it on a platter. And, John, and Herod, I should say, had already said, you can have anything you want, up to half my kingdom. Everybody, I give my word, whatever she asks for. And so after taking this oath, notice what it says in verse 8. It says that the girl prompted by her mother said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And so Herod's in a catch. He could either publicly break his oath that he has just made in front of this large crowd of people, or he could heed his conscience and not do this to John the Baptist, this holy and righteous man that he refers to him as in another place that was to be feared and respected. But Herod Antipas is a weak man. Even though he's got all this power, he's a weak man, he's a people pleaser, and he chooses to save face instead of going against his conscience uh, and going against his conscience. And he commands, as it says there in verse 9, to have John to be executed. So verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and John's head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and they told Jesus. Notice, the disciples of John, they didn't come and take John and bury John. They come and they take the body of John and bury the body of John. And I think it's significant because John's not there in that grave. That was the carcass that previously housed John that was in the grave. The real John, and by that I mean his spirit, had gone off and entered into eternity and was waiting for the resurrection of the dead. And I think it's an important distinction for us to remind ourselves in that regard. But either way, as a means of respect, the disciples, they come, they take this body of John, they bury it, and then they go and they tell Jesus. Now, if you were a disciple of a person, that means you linked yourself to them as a learner of that person. And you had this realization of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that more is learned on the way places than sitting in a classroom somewhere. That more is learned when you encounter a circumstance and the teacher can model how to respond to that or say, you know what, guys, let's just take a minute. This circumstance reminds me of something, those teachable moments. And that's what it was like for these disciples. And they had spent years with John the Baptist, and now John had been killed for his faith and his proclamation. Do you think they were a little distraught? Yeah, we read through it quickly, and they're like, oh, Jesus, I meant to tell you, by the way, your, your cousin was killed, you know, as if it was nothing to them, but it means everything to them, no doubt. And so notice it says, and so they went and they told Jesus. I appreciate what, what, what one Bible commentator said about it. He said they could have gone to anyone, they could not have gone to anyone better to pour out their grief and their indignation, nor could they have left us a better example. In times of persecution and oppression and suffering and sorrow, we too should go and tell it to Jesus. And I think too often, when we experience a situation like that, it drives a wedge between us and God. And we begin to think things and wonder things, God, where are you? God, why didn't you? God, I'm upset with you. And I believe it's okay to be honest with God with those sorts of uh, prayers, but you can't let them drive a wedge between you and the Lord. And so the lesson that these guys demonstrate to us is rather than isolating themselves from God, they did the, the wise thing, which was bring this thing to God. That is to invite God, if you will, and he's there, no doubt, but to invite him into the suffering with you, to bear your heart and to let him bring you comfort in the midst of this, which is exactly what they do. 
And so Jesus is informed of this. Now remember, all of this is a literary flashback. And so as we go on to verse 13, we, we jump back over verses 2 through 12, and we go back to verse 1, because that's the context of things, not the death of John. The context of things found in verse 1 is that Herod had begun hearing, had begun hearing about Jesus. And because Herod had begun hearing about Jesus, Jesus makes a decision in verse 13 to withdraw himself from the region of Herod. It says there that he withdraws himself to a desolate place by himself. And when we say by himself, that means he's with his disciples. So he's not all by himself, but he's with his disciples and they leave the area of Herod Antipas who had become aware of him and they go off to another place by themselves. We've seen the Lord do this before. Jesus' time had not yet come. And instead of sticking around for a fight, he, he just simply puts some distance between himself and Herod Antipas, and he heads to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You know, I think a lot of times, our pro a lot of our problems could be solved if we would just walk away. I don't need to stay here. I don't need to, like, plant my ground or whatever and prove my point. We just kind of get out of there and walk away. And a lot of problems will go away simply by doing that. And so that's not really the point of the lesson here, but it's a little extra nugget. You tuck that in your pocket. <laughs> you know, the next time you got an issue, you pull that out and you remind yourself, just walk away. So we move down to verse 21. And it says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when, this is uh, verse 13. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him, and they said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, <coughs> excuse me, he said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, well, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls, baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So first, notice Jesus valued time alone. Time alone with his disciples, even time alone from his disciples. And we see it again and again, again and again in the scripture that Jesus valued time alone with his father. And again, I'll just throw this out there as a nugget for your other pocket. You got one in the one pocket, here's another one. If Jesus thought that alone time with the father was important, then you should probably think that alone time with the father is important as well. All right, so Jesus values that. He takes that time away with the disciples. And the scenario, the, the setting, is that the disciples had been running. They had been going from one thing to the next thing, from this short-term mission trip to that kind of major event that took place. Both Mark and Luke tell us, in Luke chapter 9, we read this, that the disciples had just come back from a short-term mission trip. It says this, he called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all demons and diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So he sends them out kind of two by two. They go to these places. Now, do you think if you're teaching and miracles are happening and people are being healed, do you think a crowd will probably gather? Certainly so. 
And so they're dealing with a lot of people. They're going through this. I'm sure it was exhilarating, but it was tiring nonetheless. And they're finally coming off of this short-term mission trip when they're about to head off onto this retreat. The next thing that we know is that they are increasingly, Jesus and his disciples are increasingly at odds with the political leaders. And now there's the tension that is brewing that they want to kill Jesus and maybe arrest the disciples, whatever it may be. And there's already been decrees that anybody that is associated with Jesus will be put out of the synagogue. And so you have that constant tension. And so there's the physical fatigue, but then there's also that pressing down on your shoulders of the stress of the tension that is coming on them as well. And Mark says, Mark chapter 6, same passage here, Mark says that it had become so busy with their coming and going and people gathering and ministry and all of this, he says that they had no leisure even to eat. Now you know it's serious. If there's no time even to get a bite to eat here and they're trying to minister. I've, for my life, I find, and my wife will tell you, if I don't like eat, I start getting cranky or whatever. And, and she's like, you didn't eat lunch today, did you? I was like, shut up. I don't want to hear you or whatever. And, you know, if you don't have that time to eat anyway, it all just comes. And so I suspect that these disciples are thinking, I can't wait to get away. Every year I go on a, a retreat in uh, the third week of May. And my body begins to, like, yearn for it in April because I've been doing it for 20 years. And it's like, oh, I just can't wait to get away. Just that time to hear some other teaching and come into my life and to be with guys and pray with those guys and all of that. So I imagine these guys are thinking, I just cannot wait to get away. So imagine then how excited they must have been as they're sailing to the other side of the sea to be able to look over and see like a forest gump crowd running. Thousands of people that are running and when they finally come to the land, there is a th thousands of people, literally, hundreds of people deep on the shores. Well, let's, let's read. He said, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat, verse 13, to the other side a, place, a desolate place by himself. And the crowds heard it, and they ran, following him on foot from the towns. They, the people raced from one side of the sea to the other. Now you hear that, and you think, they race from one side of the sea to the other. How big is this sea? How fast did these people run? How slow is the boat? And all these things. Well, this isn't like some supernatural miracle on their part to get to the other side. The, the Sea of Galilee is about 64 square miles. It's about 13... Uh, miles from top to bottom, about seven miles from left to right, assuming there's not a drought as there kind of has been. They've been pumping a lot of water now um, out of the Sea of Galilee to, to give the people to drink and stuff. So it's a lot less than it used to be. But it's about 13 miles top to bottom, seven miles left to right. It's not that big, even though I said 64,000 square miles or 64 square miles. They're not going to run all the way around the thing. You know, what they're going to do is they're going to run from one point to the other point. Mark tells us that the place all these events occur is Bethsaida. Bethsaida is located right at the top of, um, of the Sea of Galilee. Think about it like as a 1 or a 12 on your clock. It's right up there. And they're coming from over here by Nazareth, which is like the 9. So they're probably only running like 3 or 4 miles to get to this particular place. Also, Jesus and his buddies, they're not in a speedboat. All right? They're, they're in there and they're kind of rowing. And they're not rowing like crazy. They're taking their time, you know, this is great. There's a little like Italian guy singing songs or whatever to them. And they're just having a good time, and they're finally going to get there. So when they do get there, there are all of these people. This was supposed to be the start of their vacation. And I have my suspicions that when it says in verse 14, when he went ashore, 
he saw a great crowd, that there were quite a few disciples that were disappointed that they saw a great crowd. And I know that's surprising, but let's just be real. You ready, you're ready to go to vacation. You know, it's Friday night and you're done for the weekend or whatever, and then the opportunity to minister comes up. Most of us are like, I don't want to minister. I want to relax. I don't want to do this. It tells us that there was a great crowd that numbered, verse 21, about 5,000 men. Notice it says, besides women and children. And so if you imagine that each guy, there was like a similar number of ladies. Now we're talking about 10,000 people. Imagine many of them are married and they brought their kids with them or their kid with them. Now we're talking 12,000, 15,000, 18,000 people that are gathered there on the edge of the shore. So we, we call this the feeding of the 5,000. You, you could conservatively say the feeding of the 15,000 because that's really what is going on here. And again, it's certainly not what the disciples were expecting for their retreat of solitude, having to deal with 15,000 people. And if it were me, and I just know my tendency, and if I was in my normal day, if it were me and I was about to start my vacation and there was 15,000 needy people on the edge of, right on my vacation home there, I don't think my response would necessarily be very Christian. And I suspect more than one disciple, I think I could fit right in that boat with some of them, I suspect more than one disciple said, come on, we're here for vacation. I just want one day off, one weekend off. I just wish to be left alone here. Why won't these people do so? I suspect many. Am I the only one? Would you be like that a little bit, a couple of you there? Certainly so. But Jesus, notice what it says of him in verse 14. It says, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. A little while back in chapter 9, it tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion in a very similar circumstance, that he was moved with compassion. And you may recall, if you were with us in chapter 9, that I pointed out that there was not even a Greek word in the language to really describe what was going on inside of Jesus. And so what the, the gospel writers did was they took a few different Greek words and they made their own word up for the language to really describe what was going on. So he wasn't like, it, yeah, and Jesus felt kind of bad for the people. You know, that doesn't describe it. So we have to make a word. And the word, I said, you could translate it. It's weird, but you could translate it this way, that Jesus loved the people with all of his guts. And I thought we should make shirts that says, Jesus loves you with all his guts, or something like that. And Will said, no, we're not making a shirt like that. But I think that we should. And so Jesus is moved with compassion. He loves them with all of, their gut, with all of his guts. The disciples may have been put off by the sight of the crowd. You and I, likely, many of us, would be put off by one more demand on our attention and one more interruption of our plans. But it says of Jesus is that he's moved with compassion. And so he hops right into ministry and he begins to care for the people and the needs that are coming before him. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6 that he also begins to teach the people. So he's healing people and doing all that's associated in that regard, and he also begins to teach the people. Luke tells us in the passage that he begins to teach them until the day itself begins to wear away, until it, the evening begins to arrive. Now you perhaps are thinking, well, of course Jesus looked on them with compassion. He's Jesus. That's what Jesus is supposed to do. He's supposed to heal the people that need to be healed and sit down and teach the people and be nice to people when he doesn't want to be nice to people. That's what Jesus is supposed to do. And I agree. <laughs> that is what he's supposed to do. That's what he is. 
But notice that Jesus' disciples are also doing the very same things of Jesus. And so I'm not like Jesus. I'm trying to be, but I'm not like Jesus. My heart isn't ready to minister when I don't feel like ministering or whatever. But I am like the disciples. And if their heart wasn't willing to do so, they did it anyway. And we're called to do so as well. These things are what they're supposed to do and they're thing, the things that we're supposed to be doing as well. Now, you might hear that and you say, well, you know what? I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if when I, if I can give and give and give and keep on giving like that. When I come to the end of myself, I'm done. I just don't have it in my nature. And in response to that, I hear what you're saying. But in response to that, I would just say this. Nobody's disputing that. Nobody's disputing that you don't have it in your nature to keep on giving when you've come to the end of yourself. Because the reality is this. None of us in our own strength have that nature in us. The Bible speaks about our old man, our flesh, fleshly nature before we came to Christ. And that old man, Paul says, likes to, hi everybody, I'm still in here, likes to rear his ugly head every now and again. And the old man, our fleshly nature, rebels against this sort of response. Our fleshly nature wants to come to the edge of the shore and say, no, not today. You can come back tomorrow. You know, I keep thinking of like parents of like young kids. It never ends. And you just keep on having to keep on having to keep on having. And I remember for me, here's the hard thing for me when my kids were little is, you know, everyone's supposed to be in bed at 8 o'clock for this one, 8.30 for that one, 9 o'clock for this one. And then 9.01, dad's in bed. And then, you know, somebody comes to the door of, you know, hey, can you help me? I'm a helpless child. I'll be on duty at 6 a.m. You know, you can come find me at that particular time. And many times that's what ministry is like. We just want to kind of shut down and not do anything. Now, I do know this. Every one of us here, we can smile and we can begin to give and we can serve even when we don't want to serve for a period of time in our own strength. Every one of us can do it. You know, we've all gone to school we've, or wherever. We've, we've done what we have to do and we don't feel like doing it. Some of us here can go on a pretty long time that way. I don't feel like doing it but I'll keep doing it because I have to. But as I imagine every one of us would attest to, at some point we come to the end of ourselves where we just don't have it in us anymore. We've reached what we believe to be is that breaking point where we can't give and serve any longer. And so here's my question that I want us to consider is what do you do then? What do you do when you've given everything you can in your flesh to help out and to be kind and to be nice and to serve but now you've come to the end of that. Well, I would suggest this to you, and I know it's going to sound like a Sunday school answer, but I would suggest this to you. When you come to that particular place, that's when you have to remind yourself of what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 11. A few chapters earlier, Jesus said this. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You remember we studied that? You've probably forgotten. It's been about two months now. But he says, when you're heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, I think many of us, we read that verse and we say, come to me all ye that are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And we stop there. And we're like, yes, sign me up. Where's the rest going to be? Hawaii, Caribbean, mountains, where are we going? I'm looking for the rest. I need the rest. But notice Jesus continues and he says, take my yoke upon you. Now, we talked about what a yoke is. You put a yoke on an animal when the animal's about to go to work. 
you don't put a yoke on an animal to lie around in the field or to be seated on the beach somewhere. And so this idea of rest is not rest from labor, it's a rest in the labor. And that's very, very significant. Because in our minds, we have this idea that I need a rest. I need to pull back from the demands. I need to stop giving. And people need to start giving to me and serving me. I've told you that Father's Day and my birthday are two of the most dangerous days of the year for me. Because my family, they're nice people. And so it's Father's Day. You know what? Dad shouldn't have to do the dishes after dinner. It's Father's Day. Dad shouldn't have to mow the lawn. It's Father's Day. Dad shouldn't have to get up for the remote. It's Father's Day. And everyone's being nice to me. And people are bringing me remote, and my son's rubbing my feet. And, you know, all kinds of (laughs) nice things are happening to me. And I start getting used to it. And what I find is right around like 6 o'clock or whatever, p.m., you know, they've been being nice to me for the last six hours. Right around 6 p.m., I begin to get really used to it. I like this new deal. Let's continue with this. You know, did you hear that Father's Day 2 comes right after Father's Day and we, we will keep it up? And that becomes a dangerous thing for me because I begin to develop this idea that it's all about me. And the reality is that's not the Christian walk. And so we are called to enter into his rest, but the rest is found in the midst of our efforts, not in the absence of our efforts. And so, again, another question is, how do we continue to serve the Lord when we have come to the end of ourselves and when we are worn out and when we are tired or just when we don't feel like it? Where do we find the strength? Well, the strength, it's very simple. And again, I know it sounds like a Sunday school answer, but who said that the Christian walk, the gospel of Jesus Christ, had to be complicated? It's not complicated at all. It's as simple as this. It comes from being connected with him. Some places in the Bible, as I just showed you there, it refers to being yoked together with him. Other places it talks about being filled with the Spirit or empowered by the Spirit. John chapter 15, same idea is called being tapped into the vine or abiding in his presence. And all of those terms are used to describe what we're talking about here, ministering in his power and not in our own power. So the requirement isn't lessened because we're tired, And the requirement isn't reduced because it's our day off, but it continues on. And so the secret is this, maintain moment-by-moment fellowship with the Lord and seek him for his empowering. If your relationship with Christ basically looks like this, on Sundays I check back in with the Lord and I get charged up again, you're doing it wrong. You know, I fill up my, my truck pretty much every Saturday. I go and fill up my vehicle you know, with gas, whether I really need it or not, and I'm full to start my week. Well, many people live their Christian, their Christian walks that way. I come back in on Sunday, check in with the Lord, plug in, get all charged up, and then I go out and I try and live it out that way for a week. And hopefully nothing crazy happens that drains too much energy away from there. But crazy things are going to happen. And so the reality is you don't check in once a week, but moment by moment you maintain fellowship with him. And even in that, you're going to come to the end of yourself and you seek him for his empowering. You ask for an extra measure of his grace to serve as he would do so. And, and, and what's so good about being able to say this, I'm so glad I teach the Bible as opposed to sort of ideas and, you know, give that a shot. See if that works for you. I know these things are going to work for us. You pray that prayer, he's faithful to answer that prayer. And so you come to him and you ask him, Lord, give me some grace right now. Well, let's keep going on. Verse 15 tells us that evening 
has come. I'll read it to you. When evening, it was evening, the disciples came and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. You know, I imagine if they were in a building, you know, the service has been over for a little while, but people are milling about, they're hanging. I imagine somebody's flashing some lights. Hey, just so you know, we're done, you know. It's time for you to get out of here. And so they're kind of flashing lights. They go over to Jesus and they say uh, to him, you got to send everybody out of here. Very practical what they say. It's getting dark. They're in an area of the Galilee region which isn't really inhabited or populated. And so you're not going to find McDonald's and things on the side of the road. And so they just simply said, look, Lord, you got to tell everybody to go home. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. We've been out here all day. These people haven't eaten. And it's about to get dark. And, you know, people are going to have to make their way out of here. It's not going to be safe for them. And so then they're going to have to spend the night here with no food. You just got to move everybody on, Lord. They say to Jesus, very wise, very practical recommendation. And it's a very reasonable thing that they're asking Jesus to do. And you can make an argument as to why he should have sent them on their way. However, Jesus responds in verse 16, and he says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And again, the disciple with the bad attitude probably thought, us give them something to eat? There's 15,000 people here, Lord. What they suggested, again, reasonable. What Jesus is now suggesting is quite unreasonable. You want us to feed 15,000 people? How can possibly a group of 13 men, Jesus included in the number there, provide 15,000 people with food to eat? You can't. Now, it's not in the Matthew passage, but both Mark and John point out that in response to Jesus saying, you give them something to eat, that one of the disciples, a guy by the name of Philip, he says, he responds by saying, not even 200 denarii would be enough to buy bread for each of them to get even a little. Now, a denarii was a day's wage in that day. So 200 of them would be 200 days wages. You see how I made the connection there? And so 200 days wages. I'm reminded when I used to work as a day laborer, and you know the guy would call and say, you're available tomorrow, and I would come, I would earn about $100 a day for doing construction type labor. $100 a day. So 200 days wages times 100, that's 20 grand. So Philip, I think with a little attitude, says, we could have 20,000 bucks and we wouldn't have enough to feed all these people. I don't know if Philip had a bad attitude, but I'm trying to put myself in his sandals there, and I would have a bad attitude. So $20,000 wouldn't be enough to feed these people. But Jesus responds, he says, they don't have to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. And he says, we don't have anything to give them to eat. Now, Jesus would respond this way. He would say, you have more than you realize to them. That's, and this is a teachable moment that the discipler would have with his disciples. He says to them, you have more than you realize. Now, I think it's that kind of phrase that sparks another disciple, this time a guy with a good attitude, to interject. And this is found in the book of John, same story though, where one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? He says, there's a boy here with five barley loaves. I guess he stole them from the kid. I, and I imagine the kid said, you can have my lunch or whatever. And so he says, here, Jesus, five barley loaves, five loaves of bread, two fish. But then notice he adds there in verse 9, but what are they among so many? 
Again, I think Philip has a bad attitude, and he gets a little snarky. Is that a word? Is that just a family word? Okay, I didn't know that's just a Downs family word, snarky. Um, But anyway, he's a little snarky, I think, here. uh, Andrew, on the other hand, seems to me to be a guy that, instead of having a little attitude, has a little bit of faith. And he says, well, here's some bread, here's some fish. But then he kind of talks himself out of that faith, and his brain kind of steps in and says, but there's 20,000 people here. We're not going to be able to feed these people with that. And again, maybe it's in response to something like that, that Jesus would say, you have more than you realize, because they had five loaves, they had two fish, and they had Jesus. And again, I know that sounds like a Sunday school answer, but that's what makes the difference in this story and in our lives as well. They were forgetting about Jesus. They were forgetting the time that they encountered two demon-possessed men that nobody could do anything with. And yet Jesus, with a word, speaks into their lives and sits them down. They're seated there in their right mind. They were forgetting the little girl whose life had been drained from her, and yet Jesus, with a word, raises her back up to life. Maybe even they had forgotten all the way back. You remember at the wedding when this whole thing started? And the person, Mary, comes in sort of a, a panic because they had run out of wine for the wedding feast. And Jesus is able to convert six stone jars filled with water into wine. So if Jesus could take two men that were out of their mind and set them in their right mind, and he could take a little girl with no life in her and breathe life back into her, well then surely he could do something with these five loaves and these two fishes. And so notice what he says there. Matthew tells us in verse uh, 19, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, take the five loaves, the two fish, and taking them, he looked up into the heaven He said a blessing, and then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate, and they were satisfied, and they took up the 12, excuse me, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces that were left over. Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus ordered all the people to sit down. We actually learn how he does that is through the disciples. Luke chapter 9, it says he told the disciples to tell the people to sit down in groups of about 50. Now, would you have listened to Jesus there? Sure, I listen to everything Jesus says, is what some of you are thinking. How about that lying one? You you listen to that one there? Would you have listened to Jesus when he said, tell everybody to sit down? Because you just came to him with good advice. Get everybody up and get them out of here. And Jesus said, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, why don't we have them all sit down? And I suspect that there were some disciples that said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be any part of this. I registered my complaint, and I'm pulling myself out of this. You want to make a mistake, you make a mistake. But I'm not telling anyone to sit down. What they need to do is get down off of this mountain so that they can go find food. So I suspect there are some that would have done that, hard-hearted people. There's a few of us in here that we would have talked back to Jesus. Others of us, most of us in this room, would have probably said, all right, I'll do it. But through the whole process, we grumble and we complain. And we want to make it very clear I'm not for this, and when it fails, it's not my fault. And so we grumble, we complain, and we say, okay, everybody, you got to be seated in groups of 50. Why do we have to be? I don't know why you have to be seated in groups of 50. Just sit down and shut up so we can get this thing over with. I'm hungry too. Just do it, and we can move on from here. Now, of course, there are some of us, a few of us, a very few of us, that would have said, this is going to be awesome. Jesus is so cool. I love him. He's going to do such great things. And usually that's like new believers. You know what I mean? And you're like, you're killing me here. You know what I mean? And so anyway, you got this mix of people. 
they finally do it, some perhaps reluctantly. Everybody is seated. And Jesus, it says, he takes the bread, he takes this fish, and he looks up into the heaven, and it says in verse 19 that he says a prayer. It was a familiar prayer, no doubt. And he says this prayer of blessing, and then he begins to take the bread and break the bread and do so. And I, I guess it says he divides up the, the fish as well. And then notice what verse 20 says, and then the disciples go and start distributing it. And then verse 20 says, and they all ate, that's referring to the 20,000 people or whatever. I think we started with like 12,000, and now I'm up to 20,000. It's growing as the day goes here. But the million people that are gathered there, they, it says that they all ate, and they were satisfied. Notice it also says in verse 20 that they took up 12 basketfuls of leftovers when they were done. They had five loaves and two fish. If you put one loaf in each basket and one fish in each basket, that's seven basketfuls. They have more at the end than they did at the beginning. Isn't that something? It also uses that word there that they all ate and they were satisfied. Some of your versions say they were filled with food. Now that word can be translated, they were glutted, that they could not eat another bite. Have you ever been glutted? The Bible calls that sin. You should confess that. I'm teasing. All right, but it does. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's funny how gluttony is a sin that we can live with in America. You're like, that's not so bad. You know, I didn't knock a bank off or something like that. I just ate too much or whatever. But gluttony is also a, a sin here. But these guys, it says that they were filled, they were glutted, so filled that they could not take another bite of their food. I'm sure you've been there. Some of you are going to go out to eat today, and you'll go to one of these diners where they feed you way too much food, and you'll be glutted, and you'll think, I can't eat another bite. And then the dessert lady comes over, and you're like, I'll be good. Give me what you got. You know, bring it here. Put it down on my table here. So anyway, we have this idea uh, that they are so filled. So this is a miracle. Some will tell you that this is, the miracle is this. It's a miracle of niceness. That what happened was the nice, cute little boy came, and he brought his lunch, and everybody else said, man, I was hiding my lunch. I feel so bad. Let me share my lunch too. And then everybody shared with one another, and we all sang Kumbaya, and we went down the hill happily. That's not what it says. The phrase that is used there, in, it's in Mark and Luke, actually. It's not in this um, verse, but it's they, he broke the loaves and divided the fish. It's a phrase that's written in a language, which means he broke and he continued to break, and he continued to break, and every time he did so, more formed. So what is happening is here is creation is taking place. He's creating, if you will, uh, these, these um, pieces of bread and the fish or whatever. So this isn't 12,000 pieces, you know, like all divided up tiny. Everybody gets a little piece that they could have, like it's communion or something. It's 120,000 pieces, and everyone's taking it and eating it and eating it, and they are so fool that they are glutted, as it says. And all four gospel writers choose to include this event in their gospels. And that's very rare. As a matter of fact, this is, besides the resurrection, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four gospels. A lot of them are recorded in three of the gospels, but there's a reason why this is the only miracle recorded in all four gospels, that it hit home with the gospel writers in the first century church and so on. And so it's included there for us. And in our day, I think it's far more than just a lesson about Jesus feeding a lot of people one day. Wow, that must have been neat. I think it's far more than that. And I think there's three takeaways. Number first takeaway is this, is that each one of us would seek the Lord to have a heart that looks on others as Jesus looks on others. And that is a heart of compassion. 
to love people, if you will, with all of our guts, even when we are tired. I think a lot of us do pretty well when we're in a right frame of mind, but it gets a little more difficult when the, the pressures of life have kind of pressed us down. But that we would seek the Lord to have the same heart of compassion that he has. Life is draining. Ministry is draining. And the temptation is to say, I'm tired and I can't do any more. And it's in those instances that we look to the Lord with a greater purpose for his grace and for his strength to minister to the needs of others. I think that's the, the first takeaway. The second takeaway is this one. And it's from this phrase where Jesus says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And I think the lesson for us is that we don't need to, peop to send people away for them to find what they are seeking. We don't need to send people away for them to find what they are seeking. And oftentimes we do, don't we? You know, people come to us and, and they share their heart, they share their need, and we send them away. Well, you need to go over there. You need to go see this doctor. You need to go see this medical professional. You need to go see this agency that is over there. You need to go to some self-help group. We send them other places, but we don't have to send them away. We give them something to eat, Jesus would say. The scripture says this, 2 Peter speaks this way. It says that we have everything that we need for life and for godliness, referring to the Holy Spirit. And if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you, working through you, ministering through you. We have everything we need for a life of godliness. John chapter 6, verse 68 says that you and I possess the words of eternal life. Jesus told us, and many of us in this room, if not all of us, have come to believe that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Which means this, we know the way to eternal life. So why are we sending everybody else elsewhere? We need to point them to Christ. Now some would say, well, you know, I'm not qualified. These guys weren't qualified. Some would say, well, I'm tired, I don't have the strength. These guys were tired and they didn't have the strength. Some would say, I don't have enough resources. Well, we just see they don't have enough resources as well. So the takeaway is this. Take the resources that you do have, give them to Jesus, and then step back and watch him work. And, and I, I just want to quickly throw in, I know we're getting long here, but I want to quickly throw in, the Lord spoke this passage into my life when I was about 19 years old. We were participating in the Lambertville Shad Festival. I don't know if you've ever gone up to the Shad Festival, but for some reason, because the fish swim upstream or downstream or some stream, and they make their way to Lambertville, 25,000 people gather and walk the streets and sell antiques. Somehow it's all connected, all right? And I'm not really sure what it is. And so what we decided to do was, we were in a church down there, let's use this as an opportunity. So we set up a little stage, played some music and guitars and sang some songs. And our youth group, we, um, we did mimes and things like that that told a story. And so... Lots of people gathered. It was crazy how many people gathered to watch our, our kids do mimes or whatever. And when all was said and done, there was this realization, somebody has to explain what these people just saw. They have to explain the mime. They have to point it to Jesus because you've got these folks that are sitting here and they're eager. There were people up on the roof, I remember. It was crazy. They were sitting up on the roof, third story of a building, kind of looking down, watching what was going on here. And so every one of us is like, somebody has to share something. Someone has to share something. And nobody, I ain't going out there. Because we were all kids or like first year in college or whatever. And every one of us is like, oh, not me. I'm not qualified for that. And ask the pastor. Ask this. Pastor wasn't around. Or he's like, I'm not going out there or whatever. And so finally, there was sort of this sense of somebody better get out there. And so I went out there because people started leaving. 
And I just began to share, you know, you just saw this thing. This is what you saw. This is what the scripture says. This is what it means, eternal life or whatever. And the Lord used it. And I certainly in that instance there felt like I didn't have anything to give these people. But Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And the Lord used me. And I, I think in our lives, it's important for us to know this truth, that God can use us. Sometimes in contemporary Christianity, where things have become kind of formalized or whatever, we sort of limit ourselves thinking, well, you know what, if I didn't go off to school, or I didn't take that evangelism class or this or that, well, then God couldn't necessarily use me. Surely there's professionals for those things. The reality is God wants to use each one of us. And, and quite frankly, I would say this. It's when we say, oh, I'm just a housewife. I'm just a school teacher. I'm just some run-of-the-mill guy. I just became a believer a couple of weeks ago. It's when we sort of say that God couldn't use me, that God does use us. I, I feel as if the Lord is saying, perfect, I can work with that. Someone who doesn't think that they have it all together, and then the Lord uses us. And I, I think that's the second takeaway. For me, that's the most significant because it just speaks to my heart about an important time in my Christian walk. The one final takeaway is notice that the disciples, they go and they pick up the leftovers. So they're good stewards, all right, but there are leftovers. So much so it says that 12 baskets were full. <clears throat> 12 baskets, not three that they had to share, but one for each of the disciples was provided for them. And that's the way that it works in ministry. We're tired, we're hungry, we just want to get away and rest. I don't want to be involved in ministry, but then we, we do. We follow the Lord's leading, we do, and the Lord provides us with our portion. And he gives us that rest even in the midst of our labors. And so be encouraged by that. The Lord is faithful in those circumstances. He'll provide you with your portion. And that's something I think that we can rejoice in as we seek to serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise and the gift Lord, of your Holy Spirit in our lives, the gift of your Son on the cross. Lord, the, the gift even of this story that we consider today, this account that we consider in your Scripture, and the reminder to us, Lord, of the way in which that you can empower us to serve you, to, to be a part of the miracles that you're doing in people's lives and in our world, and we rejoice in that. And Father, I ask that you would just kind of stir in us a, a heart of compassion. Lord, that we would sort of get away from this idea of I need to conserve my energy or myself or I need to take a break. I, I don't have anything to give others. And, and rather, Lord, instead we would, there is a place for a break, but that we would instead look to you and say, all right, Lord, what would you have me to do? And if it's to move us in a direction we don't want to be, Father, that we would then cry out to you and say, all right, well, then you're going to have to strengthen me. And Lord, it's, uh, it's just so comforting and good to know, Lord, that I can say that this morning, and we can say that in those instances with absolute confidence that you will answer that prayer. And so, Father, if need be, do a changing work within our hearts that we might see things differently, more clearly, based on our study this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.